Our scripture today is taken from the book of Acts in the first chapter. I'll be reading verses 15 through 17 and then verses 21 through 26. Hear God's word. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. And then verse 21, Luke writes, Therefore it is continued to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So, they nominated two men. Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justus, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. And God's people said, amen and amen. If you've ever attended one of the Women of Faith conferences, you might be familiar with Patsy Claremont. She's a well-known author and a Christian speaker, and she tells a story about her youngest son, Jason. When Jason was little, he had two goals in life. One was to have a lot of fun, and the other was to rest. And he did both quite very well. So it was no surprise one morning when Jason went out to catch the bus one fall day, and there was a few moments later, a knock at the door. Mom flew to the door, jerked it open, and there stood Jason looking up at her with his backpack in one hand and his lunchbox dragging the ground in the other. And Mom demanded, what are you doing here? And he said, Mom, I've quit school. (laughs) Quit school? And she looked at her child in, in disbelief, as many of us would, and she tried to think of some motherly wisdom, but all she could come up with at that time was, in a stitch in time saves nine, or starve a cold and feed a fever. So they didn't seem to fit that occasion. So she said, Jason, why have you quit school? Without hesitation, Jason said, because it's too hard, because it's too long, and because it's boring. And then his mother looked at him with great wisdom and said, Jason, you've just described life. Now get on that bus. (laughs) I imagine that the disciples, these first followers of Jesus that we've just read about, felt like Jason. Their leader had died on the cross. 
And then he rose from the grave. And he appeared to them for a period of 40 days. And perhaps just when they were getting used to hearing his voice again, then he left them again and he was taken up to heaven. And then he said, I'll be back. Sort of like a roller coaster ride, up and down, up and down. What is next? We who are Christians today, we know that Pentecost came 10 days later. We know the rest of the story, but these followers of Jesus did not. They didn't understand what the ascension was all about. Theologian N.T. Wright describes the, in, the ascension in this way. The early Christians, like their Jewish contemporaries, saw heaven and earth overlapping as overlapping and interlocking spheres of God's good creation, with the point being that heaven is the control room from which the earth is run. To say that Jesus is now in heaven is to say three things. First, that he is present with his people everywhere, no longer confined to one space in one location on earth, but not absent. Second, N.T. Wright says that he is now the managing director of this strange show called Earth, though like many incoming CEOs, he has quite a lot to sort out to, and to, to do to turn it around. And third, he writes that he will one day bring heaven and earth together as one, becoming therefore personally present to us once more in God's good creation. The Bible doesn't say as much about our going to heaven, but N.T. Wright says it says a lot about heaven and particularly heaven's chief inhabitant coming back to earth. The ascension is Jesus going to be with the Father and sitting at the right hand of the Father and then soon would pour out his spirit on the believers and the church would be birthed. We know this, they did not. And this fall band of followers of Jesus felt stuck. In verse 10 of chapter 1, Luke reports that they were just standing there looking up to the heavens after Jesus was taken up. And two angels spoke to them and says, why are you just standing there looking up in the sky? Jesus is going to come back the same way he went to heaven. You need to be about your business. So they listened to the angels and they made the Sabbath day's journey back to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. It was a certain distance that Jews could travel on the Sabbath and not be considered at work, and they made that trip. They went to the upper room, a place where they had spent much time together, exhausted and perhaps more so confused. They did the only thing that they knew to do, pray. Have you ever been in a situation where you just didn't know what to do next? So you just prayed. Maybe it's a wordless prayer. Maybe it's a one-sentence breath prayer. Maybe it's a prayer of lament. How long, O oh Lord, how long? Or why, God? Why? But you did what you knew to do, and that's pray. In verse 14 of chapter 1, they did just that. They joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. 
This is the last time we see Mary in the New Testament. And she was there as well. On one occasion there in the upper room, Peter began to speak. And if you know anything about Peter, you know that he was not known for his brevity. And Luke tells us that Peter actually helped the disciples to do the next thing. In this case, I I believe Peter's words were spot on. If you look at the last part of verse 14, Luke includes some very important detail. He reports that they were not alone, that there were many gathered, the women who followed Jesus, his Jesus' mother Mary, and his brothers, as we've already said. And we, if we think what they have just been through over the last days and weeks, you can imagine the weight of grief that they felt. They had been through so much, and now Jesus was gone again. Perhaps Peter's actions did more than prepare them for the mission of God that Jesus gave them when he said, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Perhaps Peter recalled what Jesus said in one of his resurrection appearances, going back to the Old Testament scriptures. He said in Luke, recorded in Luke 24, 44, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms. And in the verses between the one I read, Peter refers back to these prophetic Psalms and points them into the direction that they needed to select a new leader to follow in the place of Judas. You can read those other verses on your own and then go back to Matthew 27 to read more about the tragic death that Judas experienced and the pain that he felt. Today our purpose is to focus on the prophecy given in the Psalms and to look at how these early followers of Jesus sensed the will of God as they made decisions to move forward. And I believe we can learn from what they did. In verse 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, they, uh, Peter says, we need to seek another person in the place of Judas's leadership. And this word translated leadership is the Greek word episkopes. It's where we get the word episcopalian or episcopal, episcope. It means overseer. So they needed to seek another person to be responsible for overseeing the mission that Jesus had commanded them to do. Peter was leading the 11 disciples, the women, the mother of Jesus, the brothers and the others, up to 120 people, to do the next thing. Maybe there would be some encouragement. Maybe there would be some momentum. Dr. Peter James Flaming, retired pastor of Richmond's First Baptist Church, writes about doing the next thing. He said, doing the next thing is part of the healing process of our losses and griefs. And if you have read the scriptures, you know there was tremendous loss and subsequent grief in the lives of Mary and the siblings and also the apostles who followed. Dr. Fleming writes, During the early, frightening, disabling times of grief, many have found it helpful to live by three practical rules. I'll share detail about the first one and just give you the others. The first one really applies today. Dr. Fleming says, just do the next thing. It sounds simple, but... In traumatic loss, people find it difficult even to get out of bed sometimes. Salute those who in heavy, heavy grief just do the next thing. Why is this so important, he writes. It employs the healing power of tasking. 
Each day, take upon yourself a task or two that you don't feel like doing, that you don't want to do, but needs doing. Maybe it's just cleaning up or doing errands or something like that. Two good things happen. First, things get done. And second, you give your emotions a rest by doing something instead of feeling something. Tasking has healing power. Do the next thing. And I believe that doing the next thing had healing power for this group of 120 followers of Jesus. Dr. Fleming also says, don't expect too much of yourself and adapt an attitude of survival. This is from his book, Never Stop Starting, the, final, the most recent book that he wrote in his retirement. Peter helped this group to do the next thing. To select a new leader from their group to replace Judas would give them some encouragement and some momentum that they needed because they had no idea that Pentecost would be, that Jesus would be pouring out his spirit. They didn't know all of that. They were just trying to get through this interim period. Not only would they seek God's will for this person, but Peter and the disciples would also provide a framework for Christians and their churches to discern God's will in their lives and in their ministries. So let's take a quick look at what happened next. Starting there at verse 21, you can see they looked at some qualities of what this candidate would be. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time. The Lord Jesus was living among us. This was not a newcomer. This was someone who'd been there since the very start of Jesus' ministry. An early follower. And then Luke writes, the Lord, uh, for, beginning from uh, John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up. That's the ascension. So from the very beginning of his ministry all the way to the ascension. They wanted someone who had experienced the same thing that they had experienced. Two viable candidates emerged. Justice, whose name means just or what is right, just or right. And Matthias, whose name means gift of God. Both met the qualifications. And, and then you see the leaders humble themselves in prayer. Verse 24, Lord, you know everyone's heart. God knows your heart. He knows my heart. In the Old Testament, you remember in the selection of King David, God, uh, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Literally, this word translated is heart knower or heart searcher. God is our heart knower. He knows our heart, but God also searches our hearts. That's what was going on here. They acknowledged the omniscience of God, that God already knew everything, and they were just trying to line up with the will of God. And they asked, then they asked God, show us the one you have chosen. Look at this in the latter part of verse 24. God, show us which the one you've chosen. So it's like they step back and they say, God, we've, we've selected these two, but now, and we feel that they meet the qualifications, but we're asking now you to show us which one. And they acknowledged God's leadership. And his, the purpose was to take over this apostolic ministry where Judas left off. And then it's very interesting in the decision-making process. As you heard in the children's message, they employed a, an ancient way of making decisions called the casting of lots. And 
it's simply taking a small pebble, stone, or a small piece of wood. The, the, the literal word actually comes from uh, wood that is broken into small bits. And it's smoothed down, sanded, smoothed down. And then a name of the one being selected, of the ones in the nomination pool, are put on the lots and then are put in a, a vessel like a vase or a jar. And then they're shaken, and the first lot that comes out is the one that is selected. And this was the way that they would select priests in the Old Testament to serve in the temple. And so the apostles knew that not only would they pray, but that they would follow a pattern uh, that had been given to them from old. And the lot fell on Matthias, and they sensed that not only was God aware of all that they needed to do, but that God was even in their process, and Matthias was selected. This word translated lot is in two places in our passage. The first in verse 17, where it simply says Judas was one of their group, part of their group. He was part of the lot, right? But in verse 26, when they cast lots, the word has a different meaning. That's the process that they followed. It's the selection process or nomination process, as we would call it here in the church today. The Greek word translated lot is kleros. It's where we get the Latin word kleros and clericus, which is where we get the English word clergy. So when we think about clergy being called to serve in the church, it comes from an ancient process of discernment, casting of lots. We don't cast lots anymore in the modern church. In fact, this is the last time that it appears in the New Testament church. Uh, but you know, we, might think, we might say to the early apostles, that's kind of strange that you would do that. It's kind of like um, a board game, you know, like little dice. But it's not dice, it's not gambling, it's not happen chance. That's the way they did it. They might say, well, y'all are kind of strange by using Robert's Rules of Order. What's that all about? And you vote as a church, and you have a nominating process, and you have bylaws and a constitution. Well, that's not in the Bible. And we would say, well, we pray, we come together, and we seek your will. God, the heart knower, the heart searcher, we lay it before you. And then we've come up with a process that works for us. So what we do today might be strange to them. What they did back then might be strange to us. But the most important thing is that God's in it. If we run ahead of God, or if we just do our own thing, then we are out of the will of God. So they selected Matthias to be part of the twelve, and then they continued along in the early church. Matthias is not mentioned again in the New Testament. Some of the twelve aren't mentioned much either. One writer says these unfamous, unknown people started the church that spread across the entire world. God seems to use average, unspecial, unfamous disciples like you and me to do important work. And I'm glad to be a part of it. And we do this important work with lessons learned from those who've gone before us. We as a church continue to seek the will of God as we seek to make decisions today. For example, in our church, we're 
heading down the road of calling two new staff members, one for our student ministry and another for our senior adult ministry. We're seeking the will of God in prayer for that. We're also looking to enhance our contemporary service and relocate it back to the Family Life Center. We're looking to challenge ourselves to invest in some new equipment so that that will be uh, able to happen. We're also praying that some of you all will step up and serve on teams to set up and take down chairs and all of those kinds of things and run sound and help with video, even in our 11 o'clock service as well. Those are the things that we continuously seek. And we're also looking to uh, reach the community that's right around us. If we as a church can focus heavily on a, a radius right around our community, then we will reach people beyond our community. We believe that. We also believe that individuals will use this process. You're making decisions on what college to attend, what job to take or to leave, whom to date or marry, which church to attend, should I join, how can I serve in that church, how should I spend my money and give, when should I retire, or whether I should accept Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord and become part of this beautiful thing called church. A lot of decisions that we make, and I hope that this process that I'm going to share with you, this framework will be a help. And the framework is simply this, and it's in your notes if you want to take some notes so that you can apply it to your life this week and in the weeks ahead. And this is very brief. The first thing we learn is that the early apostles believed in the risen Christ. They were together in their belief. And when we are in one in our belief in the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit, then we can go to one another and seek counsel from one another and be able to trust in one another, which is the second part of our framework. To believe in the risen Christ and then to trust in one another. Where two or more are gathered together in his name, there he is among you. Trust in one another. In that verse 14, they joined together constantly. The Greek word has a sense of to be in unison alongside of one another. One commentator states this image is almost musical. Michelle, I know you'd like this. He writes, a number of notes are sounded which while different harmonize in pitch and tone. As the instruments of a great concert under the direction of a concert master, so the Holy Spirit blends together the lives of members in Christ's church. And the third part of our framework, stick to prayer and God's word. To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder in this world, says theologian Karl Barth. I believe that God will never ask you and me to do something that's contrary to what the Bible teaches us. And I also believe that when God asks us to do something, that God's going to provide the means and the ability to do it. We might not understand it. It might not be there tomorrow, but I believe that he will provide. And the fourth part of our framework is remember that we live under God's forgiving love. How many of you have ever made a decision and failed miserably? Can you join me? Can I get an amen? I'm going to raise both of my hands here. Yes. Do you know something? When we make poor decisions, when churches make poor decisions, God is a redemptive God and God's going to work anyway. Don't ever let your failures keep you from understanding that truth that God loves you and that God will work through you any way. Martin Luther said, 
we will have to choose boldly our path. We don't often know for certain which is the right path. We choose knowing that God's forgiving love will sustain us in the midst of life's many decisions. God's forgiving love will sustain us. In all things, we must remember that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And we love that verse in Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purposes. When I fail, God is going to use me anyway to accomplish his greater purposes. And I'm very thankful for that. Our bad decisions don't separate us from the love of God. We act in the assurance that nothing, nothing can separate us from his love. Let us pray together.